0: This is my feeling about self-help books is at their best, they'll give you a jolt of insight and a jolt of motivation. Like that's the best they can do. And then if you can take that, you might be able to change your life or you may be able to do it for six months and then you fall off the wagon. And next thing you know, you're ordering Papa John's pizza and reading political websites.
1: Hello, Book Society. This is a little bit of a New Year special. We recorded it earlier in the year, but I thought that this would be a great one to wait until resolution time because I'm guessing that a lot of people got this book for Christmas or have been reading this book over the holidays and are going to start the new year with a resolution building their habits from scratch. So what better way to start the year than to hear me trashing the entire concept of self-help? Here we go. My guest today is Wayne Fetterman, who is an actor, comedian, author, musician, really talented guy. And Wayne and I met in the before times when people used to get together at parties. I just walked into this crazy apartment party in Silver Lake and Wayne was playing the piano and he was playing some standards that I knew. And basically, I just got up there with you and we did a set together. Pretty much. We got everyone involved. I would say it was a pretty successful sit in.
0: You were very key to the whole thing.
1: Well, you too. You knew all those songs. Between you and I, Wayne, I would say we know a strange amount of 100-year-old songs.
0: Right, right. But we also did a great version of Maxwell's Silver Hammer because you actually (laughs) found a cup and did the clang-clang. Do you remember that at all? Yeah.
1: Too many years in showbiz, you know?
0: Yeah, it was great. But that was the last party I went to before COVID. I mean, now I don't even know if I'd be able to be in a space like that. It was so
1: crowded. Oh yeah, it was maybe 2000 square feet over two apartments and like 500 people there was what it felt like. It was crazy.
0: At one point it was like is this balcony going to collapse cuz it was just a lot. But anyway, that was great to meet you and we've been
1: kind of friends ever since. Yeah, I feel like we would hang out more if that were possible. I also in the time since we met, I've had another kid. There's been a pandemic and you're also, I should say for our audience, you're a pretty busy actor. You're out there doing stuff all the time. And I had the experience, Wayne, that I think people have when they meet you, which is, I saw you playing the piano and I was like, I know that guy. And if you Google Wayne or you go to booksociety.com and see Wayne, you're going to have the same experience. And the reason that you know him is because he's been in basically everything funny that you can imagine. I'm a big Dodger fan and I've been watching the Dodger telecast and I keep thinking, you know, if Wayne just had a little part in this, it'd be (laughs) a lot funnier.
0: It's a big day yesterday.
1: I know, man. This podcast is unapologetically Dodger fan. I think I've been to 20 games this season and you're a sports fan. You wrote a book about basketball. I'm a sports fan who's a
0: comedian. It's not quite the level of the real sports fanatics. For a theater geek, I'm pretty good at sports, but not in the real world.
1: As you can tell, Wayne and I definitely hang out and talk about stuff, and so this might be a little bit less focused than some of the other podcasts, but that's okay. It's going to be a lot of fun, which is ironic because the book that Wayne chose is Atomic Habits by James Clear, the runaway self-help sensation of 2021. It's been on number one for a long time. I'm part of it. I have the hardcover edition. Nice. Are you a James Clear subscriber? Just last week, I clicked
0: on it. I haven't read an email yet, but... Yeah, I know he kind of does the convergence but I had never heard of him before this book.
1: No I hadn't either and he was apparently pretty popular from the book he describes that he had about a million email followers when Penguin Random House reached out to him to do a book which is kind of a no-brainer of a book deal right? I mean if you've got a million email subscribers you're gonna have a bestseller.
0: I feel like the book is more than just like because there's so many people in this genre You know, and there's conventions and they're supporting each other. And one guy puts out a book and the other 50 write great reviews on Amazon for them. It's like a very incestuous world, the self-help world, because at the very top are multimillionaires, right?
1: So I was kind of obsessed with this for some reason during the pandemic with these gurus. To be clear, James Clear is not a guru. James Clear is a self-help expert, which is a completely different thing. I don't think James Clear charges hundreds of thousands of dollars for personal coaching. I think he just wants to sell his book.
0: I don't know. He does do speeches to corporations. I'm sure he gets paid for all of that stuff. I just don't know if he has those big meetings in Orlando, Florida, where everyone flies in.
1: So I don't really know his media presence that much. I guess when I think of a guru, I think of someone who has YouTube videos with them driving around in Lamborghinis and says, you can live my life if you just learn Amazon automation from me. But he's not one of those guys. This is the first book I read for the podcast that I had some trouble with, because it's the self-help genre, which is not a genre that I like. I love it. This is going to be great. So I'll tell you what my problems with it were.
0: Yeah, let's hear it. This is the James Clear Takedown podcast.
1: Let's do it. <laughs> I have nothing against James Clear. I think he's an excellent writer. My problem is really with the genre of self-help in general, which is one of the problems I had is that there was nothing in this book that I hadn't heard before. There was nothing in this book that was new. For economics, you know, if you have subscribed to these kinds of podcasts, I had this discussion with my wife before I had it with you. She's a little bit more reasonable than I am. And one of the things that she pointed out to me, which made me like the book more, was simply that the fact that it wasn't new information is irrelevant. It's the fact that it was presented in a way that's helpful that makes it relevant. What makes a successful self help book is presenting the information in a way that's actionable and changing the way you think rather than changing the way that you go about your life. And I think that James Clear really does that. The evidence for that for me is that I came at this book antagonistically. I read it two weeks ago. I read it again and I have not been able to stop thinking about it. The thing that rubbed me the wrong way immediately is that it starts the way every self-help book starts, which is with the personal story.
0: Yes, about him getting hit in the head with the baseball or whatever that was. Yeah.
1: I guess what I'm trying to say, Wayne, is that I came to this book not wanting to like it and it won me over. Wow. Oh.
0: Well, tell me specifically, like, was there a moment, were there aha moments for you? Because there were numerous for me. And yet for you, you're like, I've heard this all before. This is a retreaded. Nice try, James. I've heard it all.
1: So there were aha moments. There were no aha moments reading it. There were aha moments afterwards when I realized that some of the stuff that I had heard that I intellectually knew, I was now able to see through a different lens that was more relevant to me. I think that's good self-help. And he says in the preface of the book that he didn't invent any of this stuff. And he even has the incredibly modest and very honest. It basically says, assume any wisdom in this book is the work of the people who studied this stuff, whose work I'm drawing on, and that any mistakes are my own. He really does draw on a lot of things that I'm interested in. And I found myself reevaluating my own habits. So the book, Atomic Habits, obviously, is about habits and how habits become who you are. At least this is James Clear's theory.
0: Well, I think one of the reasons I like the book, and I'm going to disagree because a lot of self-help books are about setting goals and meeting those goals. And his was, I know you want to set these goals and meet these goals, but the way to do it is not by setting goals, it's by changing who you are, and then you can achieve these goals. And the way you changed how you are is by changing your habits. And here's how you change your habits. I will show you how to do this. So I thought it was a little different right from the start. And you're like, oh, I've heard this all before. I mean, obviously, Seven Habits of Highly Successful People was a huge book. But I just thought his was a little different. Yes, it's all basically the same thing. It's like how to be efficient in life. And like, why am I procrastinating? And why am I going to McDonald's when I want to be eating salads? And all of that stuff. Or why am I not working out? So I thought his was right from the outset, was different than the normal self-help book I had read.
1: Yeah, I would agree with that. Now that I'm talking to you about this, and I think my problems with this book are entirely personal and have nothing to do with the book. No, let's talk about those. I agree with you. I think one of the things I really took from it was the thing you just mentioned about habits rather than goals, like trying to be the kind of person who does this rather than be the kind of person who accomplishes this is huge. I'm a chronic overachiever in some ways, but all of my achievements have been goal oriented. So I have this burnout that he describes really eloquently in the book, which is like, I finish something and then I don't know what to do because I don't turn myself into the person who runs marathons. I've never run a marathon, but I've done a hundred mile bike race, but you I don't turn myself the pers-
0: person that completes projects. By the way, that puts you already into like a 5% of people who do things. You know why? And he talks about it in the book. Because it's easier to research, practice, put it together, than to offer yourself up for criticism. And that is the big thing that people don't want to do, myself included, where you're just like, oh, I'm still writing this. Right now, no one can criticize it. Everyone's like, oh, my God, you're writing a book. That's amazing. I could never do that. I was like, yes, yes, it's incredible. But once the book comes out or when you finish one of your projects, Then you're like, ah, I didn't like the B-flat diminished chord. I wish it was an augmented. So that you already can transcend that puts you in a very elite category.
1: I appreciate that. I don't know if transcend is the right word, more like reluctantly pull myself through the horror of criticism. You know it, right? Yeah. It's interesting because we're in the performing arts. I think you're definitely more of a performing artist than I am, but you're out there doing your thing all the time. And I think that the difference between an amateur and a professional in the arts is subjecting yourself to criticism and putting your art in front of an audience. Until you do that, you're not going to get the kind of feedback you need. And you can't get paid either. (laughs) That's true. You also can't get paid.
0: I know you're glossing over this, but I do think that's a big part of you. And even the way you said, as soon as I'm done a project, I'm like, what else can I do? So you're very goal-oriented just by nature. So maybe, I don't know, maybe you're not as neurotic as some people. What is your thing? Let's find out.
1: I'm sufficiently neurotic. I'm 41, and I went to the doctor recently and Basically, he was like, so everything's cool. Everything is good, but it's like trending in the wrong direction. And you're at the age where like consistency is what is going to make the difference. So you're either going to have consistent habits and consistent dietary needs, and you're going to be healthy for the rest of your life, or you're going to fall off a cliff in the next 10 years. He's like, that is what happens to everyone. This is what scared me because, you know, I got a podcast, I'm working on a book and I'm a musician. I'm all over the place, which makes it really hard for me to be consistent with anything. In my life, in my mind, in my perfect life, I wake up in the morning, I practice guitar for two hours, and then I write for two hours, and then I do emails for two hours, and then I work on the podcast for two hours. But there has never been a day in my life that has gone that way.
0: Right. Do you like the juice of having a lot of things spinning around a little bit?
1: I mean, I must just because that's how I live. So one of the things in this book that I realized was to... Think about what is the kind of person that I want to be and what would the kind of person that I want to be be doing right now. And that in itself in the last 10 days has helped me focus more. Just that psychological shift. I guess to be more critical and to level my specific criticism about this book, I will tell you the one thing that rubbed me the wrong way, which is the whole stuff about the British cycling team. I'm an amateur cyclist, and this is something I know a good deal about. So he starts by talking about the British cycling team. They were terrible. And then they hired a new coach who instituted what they call marginal gains, which is doing little things to get better over time. This is how he characterized it, is that the way that they got better was by instituting little changes to get better over time. But that is a mischaracterization of what marginal gains is in the sports context. And he even said he took this team of mediocre athletes and made them into world champions. And that is also not true. The theory of marginal gains is that if you're already in the top 99th percentile of something, like you're already a cyclist who qualifies for the Tour de France, if you can gain anywhere, that gives you an advantage over your opponent. So if you can gain one one hundredth of a percent of an advantage somewhere, those accrued, if that adds up to half a percent, then you're actually going to be quite a bit better than your opponents. So what they did in the British cycling team was all these brilliant things like washing their hands so they don't get sick, dialing in their diet, keeping their muscles at certain temperatures. One of the crazy things they did was bring the riders' mattresses to the hotels that they were staying at so that they were always sleeping on their comfortable mattress that they liked so they got a better night's sleep. And this did make the team better, but also getting Bradley Wiggins made the team better. And also, this did not take mediocre athletes and make them world champions. It took elite athletes and made them better. (laughs) So the idea of practicing marginal gains in your life to go from becoming a non-musician to a good musician is not going to work. You have to put in a lot of work to get to the point where those marginal gains are going to start to accrue in a meaningful way for you.
0: All right. But I think that's the theme of his entire book is if you start doing this today in a year... You might be able to lose the weight and stuff like that. So his whole point is it's all getting this in motion. So it's part of your life. So he might have misrepresented that a little bit. But I still feel like the theory is right of marginal. Yes, they weren't mediocre athletes, obviously, but they did do little things to make themselves better.
1: I don't know. Maybe I'm overthinking it and maybe I'm being a little too arrogant. Wayne, you're a very successful guy, and like, you're very good at a lot of things. And for you, marginal gains are going to make a big difference. And I'm in the same boat in some areas where if I could practice a little bit more, it would make a big difference with my playing or if I could do X, Y or Z. But I just don't think that's the way to start a skill. But maybe that's just because I did not start any skills that way. When I started playing guitar, when I started playing music, what I did was I got completely obsessed with it to the exclusion of everything else for 15 years. And then I was good enough where like I could make small tweaks that would make a difference. And I won't speak for you, but I would imagine that there was a period in your comedy lifetime where going out to clubs and doing shows was basically all you did.
0: Yeah, I mean, it was a big part of my life, especially in New York City. But I don't know. I follow NBA. That's my main sport. And almost every coach, every player, every guy says, yeah, this win was great. This loss was terrible. But all we're doing every day is trying to get a little bit better. That's all we're doing. So when you think of somebody like Kobe, guest, sexual assault aside, he did have great habits of getting up and working out and not going to clubs and not doing all of that stuff. And I think over the course of his career, it did pay off. But I think that had to do with his habits as much as him wanting to be as good as Michael G. All these guys want to be, but what are they actually doing?
1: You're right. Yeah, one of the things I've been going through after reading this book is just thinking about analyzing my habits and realizing that some of them are good and some of them are bad. And the ones that were easy to change, I've like already kind of changed. And habit stacking, that's definitely new. That was new to me. Do you want to tell the listeners what that is a little bit? Again,
0: I'm not a practitioner. I've just read the book. I'm trying to maybe slowly incorporate it. Habit stacking is where you do a good habit and then you link it or piggyback another good habit right after it. So now you're doing like three or four great things as opposed to, oh, I'm just flossing.
1: I've started doing that. I water my plants every morning. I'm gonna water my plants and then I'm gonna do like the stretch that I'm supposed to do to keep my back healthy. And it really works. It's very simple and it adds no time to my day.
0: This is my feeling about self-help books is At their best, they'll give you a jolt of insight and a jolt of motivation. Like, that's the best they can do. And then if you can take that, you might be able to change your life, or you may be able to do it for six months, and then you fall off the wagon, and next thing you know, you're ordering Papa John's pizza and reading political websites. I just know a lot of people... Like I feel distract themselves with politics these days. And I'm kind of fascinated by it. Like I know people that have MSNBC on all day. That is weird to me. And I'm interested in politics, you know, but I do think it's because those networks provide a dopamine jolt to you that you don't have to do anything for.
1: I feel the same way. I mean, my crutch right now is the Dodgers. I think I've seen every game this season. I've maybe missed three. Not in person, but I've watched, I think, every game. Of 162 games? I've watched at least 140 of them, easily. A lot of
0: people ask me, if they don't get sports, what do I get out of it? And again, I'm not a sports fanatic. I do enjoy it, though. And yesterday's game, someone's going to win the pennant in one game, right? I might have watched two innings of it. That's how I can do it. But it would be different if it was NBA, I think. So, I don't really digest sports on that level, but people ask me, why do you waste your time in sports watching these millionaires? I'll tell you why for two reasons. One, I love human excellence, I love it. I love watching it, I like experiencing it, whether it's in design, dance, but sports, it's so clear who's great because it's a little more quantifiable than it is in, let's say, HR, who's the best HR lady. I, of course, it's a lady, you know, in business. Who would know? Who would know? But that's one reason. And also, there is a historical drama that's being played out. That's connected to Jackie Robinson. And the more you know about it, there's this ongoing play. Obviously, it's a reality show, sports, right? That's what I love about it.
1: I love the same thing about it. It's entertainment. That's how we approach it is. Why are you, the viewer, going to continue to watch this? And the answer is because there's a story that you're being told. And an unknown outcome. And an unknown outcome. The way that you describe sports as an unfolding historical narrative is exactly how I see it as well. It's also an aimless story. There's no end to it. There's never going to be an ending where sports is over and somebody won. It's just this unfolding story that you feel like as a fan, you're kind of a part of. Roland Barthes wrote about... Okay, who's that? Who's that? He's like a 19th century French linguist, and he wrote about a wrestling match that he saw in Paris in 18-something. And it's the same script as a WWE match. It's the same characters. They interact in the same way. And he wrote about how this is this sporting monomyth that is just so satisfying that you can literally repeat it endlessly and people will continue to like it. So to bring this back to self-help, I feel like self-help is kind of the same way. It's telling you the same story, maybe with new data, maybe in a new way, over and over and over again. And with different emphasis. But it is very satisfying. It's totally different emphasis. And there's some irresponsible self-help books where it's just cynical and stuff is made up. Atomic Habits is not one of those. Atomic Habits is definitely one of the good ones. I think it's the same kind of myth where it's you can fulfill your potential by following these steps. So we had a previous podcast guest and we talked about the idea that human beings don't follow rules in that way. But James Clear gives you an idea. Here's how you can follow rules in that way. And you'll never get it perfect, but you can make progress. I think that's a pretty powerful idea.
0: It is. It is. Can I tell you that a self-help book changed my life? Not James Clear. So I have way more affinity for self-help books. There was a self-help book called... Your Erroneous Zones. I know it sounds like a dirty book, but it was by a guy named Dr. Wayne Dyer. I don't know what kind of doctor he was. And that was the first self-help book I ever read. It changed my life. But his book was not about atomic habits or anything like that. His was that you, as a human being, are in charge of your emotions. These people are just like, ah, I'm Italian. What can I say? I got a short fuse. All of these excuses people use for behavior... You can't change the outside stimulus. Like if the car accident happens, your girlfriend breaks up with you, your mom and dad are yelling at you, you get a D in chemistry. That can't be changed. But how you react to it is totally up to you. And that was mind-blowing. I know it sounds simple now, but at the time, for a 16-year-old, it was really eye-opening.
1: Sure, yeah. Most self-help, I think, is like that in that, It tells you something that is obvious, but it was not obvious to you at the time. Clearly, your emotions are within your control, but sometimes you need to hear that in order to really understand it. People build these stories around how they behave and tell these stories to suggest that they can't behave in a different way. From moment to moment, you're not in control of your emotions, but you're in control of your actions. At
0: the time, that's what I needed. Now I need some James Clear in my life because I eat too much Taco Bell. What can I tell you?
1: I hear you. I don't like Taco Bell, but there's a donut shop near my house that I cannot stay away from. <laughs> I keep trying to tell myself, a la James Clear, that I am not the kind of person who eats donuts. But but I keep getting evidence that I am the kind of person who eats donuts. I keep casting votes for eating donuts, as he would put it.
0: Can I ask what your donut of choice is?
1: Recently I've been into the Apple Fritter.
0: Yes. I love that thing. Yeah. So yeah.
1: for listeners who don't live in Los Angeles. There is a donut culture here that is just underground that people don't know about. But Dunkin' Donuts has completely swallowed the East Coast donut scene. But they have not quite made it out here yet. And the donuts that you can get at these random indie donut shops are just covered in sugar. And they're crunchy on the outside sometimes and soft on the inside. It depends. But it's a culinary scene that people don't talk about enough. And so I'm not just addicted to Dunkin' Donuts. I'm addicted to like really high quality, extremely sugar laden Very calorically dense donuts. (laughs) I managed to quit smoking cigarettes. And one of the things he says in the book is that there's a difference between someone offering you a cigarette and saying, no, I'm trying to quit and no, I'm not a smoker. And that is a bridge that I've crossed. That is some real stuff. Yeah. This is me just trying to get better. That's all it is. Yeah, I'm with you. I'm trying to get better. And I think part of the reason I resist self-help in general is I don't want someone telling me what I'm doing wrong because sometimes I think I just like to wallow in the wrongness.
0: There was something else that really hit me in this book. The difference between motion and action or something like that. I thought it was really interesting because I do a lot of motion is like, I'm researching, I'm putting it together, but it's not actual action that can, as we spoke about earlier, be open to criticism. So even though you're in motion, not actually producing or anything or risking, I thought it was a really interesting distinction. That alone was worth, how much does this book cost? I think 20 on Amazon. There's a difference between doing a lot of things. Like a lot of times I watch movies under the guise of like, oh, I'm learning how to write screenplays, but I'm still in motion. It's not writing a screenplay. It's watching a movie.
1: (laughs) I think that, that motion versus action thing is kind of a way that creative people and especially professional creative people keep the ball rolling because you do have to do some of that shit. It's true that watching a screenplay is not the same as writing your screenplay, but it is necessary.
0: It's just a slightly different thing. That's all.
1: So Wayne Fetterman is an author in addition to being a comic and a professor of standup. And he wrote a brilliant book called the history of stand I, I, first became aware of many of the ideas in the history of stand-up because you also have a podcast called the history of stand-up it's a limited series yeah there's more coming by the way there's more coming oh great and it takes you through the entire history of stand-up and it is fascinating i'm a comedy fan and this really deepened my appreciation for the art form and it's funny and it's interesting and anyone who likes comedy which i think is most people will really enjoy it when i've gone to the store or when i've gone out to see shows recently just seeing someone on stage It's richer because they've got this history behind them.
0: That's the greatest compliment. Thank you.
1: So tell us about it. Tell us about the genesis of it. Tell us why you wrote it. Let me do it, James Clear. When
0: I was a kid, I was really into comedy. I became a ventriloquist when I was in high school because I was into comedy, but I didn't have enough guts to do straight stand-up. And then through ventriloquism, I learned about this guy, Edgar Bergen who was a famous ventriloquist on the radio, the greatest job in show business, like a mime on the radio. And from him, I was like, oh, who are these other radio comedians? I didn't know. I knew George Carlin. I kind of knew Jack Benny because he was still around when I was a kid. But I didn't know these Fred Allen and all of those guys. So I got into old-time radio as a teenager. Nobody was into it except me and old people who were like, oh, I want to listen to this radio show from when I was a young child growing up during the depression. So I've always, since I was a teenager, been fascinated by the history of stand-up. So through all those years of learning about it and then becoming a professional comedian, and then luckily Vulture Magazine, I pitched an article to them that I had an idea and they loved it. They sent it in and they paid me and it went up and it was successful. I started writing about it about eight years ago. And then the podcast came along and then the teaching job came along. And then I was like, oh, I sound like someone who's qualified to write a book that's in my head. Over the pandemic, I put it all together into very, it's not a long book. It's not long. I really blow through the history of it, but I think you get it. That's kind of the story.
1: Yeah, it's a fantastic book. It's not long. It's easy to read. Wayne is also a very funny writer, as you can probably tell. It's a really fun read, which is breezy, which is what it should be for a history of comedy. I mean, there are histories of music and they're impenetrable. (laughs) But you pick up this book and it's fun to read and you're like, oh, Mark Twain. So I really love the way that it's done. How would you apply Atomic Habits to comedy and to getting better at being a comic?
0: I guess if I started becoming more disciplined writing, because a big part of stand-up, Jerry Seinfeld got into a habit of writing every day and would put an X in his calendar. His goal was like, I didn't want to break that line of X's. And Jerry Seinfeld has made more money doing comedy than anyone who's ever done it. So I think that that would definitely be an atomic habit that I could maybe adapt because I don't write every day. Also, remember we were talking earlier about being erotic and different parts of your genetic makeup and one of the things I really admire about Seinfeld that I thought about reading Atomic Habits was that I don't think Jerry Seinfeld is super neurotic. I don't think he's more sensitive to negative cues, whereas I feel like I am pretty sensitive to that. Sometimes I feel like that's not a great thing as a stand-up to be that sensitive. You got to sort of be in control and just do it and let the chips fall. So anyway, those are a couple areas where this book has definitely triggered like, oh, this... Coexists in my world.
1: I flagged that section also. Sensitive to negative cues. Yeah, I'm hypersensitive to negative cues. The worst. Yeah, it's the weirdest trait to have <laughs> as a professional artist. Yeah, something to get over, right?
0: I don't know. I think it's something just to be aware of as part of my genetic predisposition and something, yes, that maybe I can transcend or even think about like, oh, this is what's happening. Now that I'm acknowledging it, I can deal with it without getting all nervous and jerky and my eyes start blinking and my, you know.
1: <laughs> no negative cues on this podcast. Don't worry about that. No, not yet. Not yet. <laughs> not yet. What are some of your favorite contemporary comics that we might not have heard of?
0: One is Sam Murrell. He couldn't get a Netflix special. So he put up his own special on YouTube and now I believe has over 5 million hits. And it's just great. It's just great. Another one is, I don't think she has a special, but she's been on these little roast battles and she has a Conan spot she did. And her name is Dina Hashem. She's incredible. Next level joke writer. I love Jacqueline Novak, who has a show about moral sex that sounds... Very base, but the way she does it, it's like poetry. It's incredible. It's like if Dorothy Parker had written a show about that. And then Fahim Anwar, who incredible story, is a kid, son of immigrants, and his dad's like, "I'm not paying for college if you're going to study theater, which was his dream, right?" Because so I'll pay for engineering school. So he got his degree in engineering. Got a job at Boeing in Long Beach and at night would come up and do sets at open mics and then got in at the comedy store and now makes a great living doing stand up. It's just a great American success story. And he's so funny and quirky and he's just a natural. I love him. Those are just four you may not have heard of.
1: That's great. So you recommended Sam Morrell to me when we first met. And I've watched that special. And man, it is hilarious and amazing. It's so good. It's old
0: school jokes.
1: Set up punchline, but it's fantastic. And Dina. So I don't know a lot of her work, but there's a video of her doing a roast battle where it's her and this really confident dude. And she just destroys it. Like, I mean, it's like almost not fun, but it's so funny. Like she just destroys him so hard. It's really amazing.
0: And she never speaks louder than this. This is her yelling. It's so great. I mean, there's a bunch of other comedians as well, but those are just off the top of my head.
1: Wayne, thank you so much. It was great to have you on. I think we might have to have you on again. Tell me and the listeners where we can find you and your work and all that stuff.
0: I have a website. It's not great. WayneFetterman.com. I'm on Twitter at Fetterman. That's basically it. Or you can just Google me or read my Wikipedia page that other people have written nice stuff I'm on. Some things are not accurate, but it's basically right. You can't change it is the problem.
1: That is it. That is it. That's the end of the podcast. So this is a self-help book. This is our New Year's special, New Year, New You. My resolutions are to keep making this podcast weekly, to post more stuff to the website, and to finish my book. That's not a resolution as much as a contractual obligation, but I'm going to do it anyway. The best way to find out about Book Society is to go to the Book Society website, booksocietypod.com. Get on the mailing list. I'm going to send out a newsletter. Sorry, did I forget to say silent cell phone? I'm, I'm sorry.
0: I'm <laughs> sorry. Judd Apatow. Sorry for the name drop.
1: <laughs> for the listeners, he showed me his phone. It really was Judd Apatow calling him. And so if you're <laughs> listening to this podcast, just know that Wayne blew off Judd Apatow to continue talking to us. <laughs>